It's Friday, December 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It was mid-June when President Trump announced that he wanted to create a space force. And while some may have thought it was just some more rambling by the president, it might be much more necessary than you might think. There's a new arms race that is threatening to explode in space, and the president wants to create another branch of the military to maintain our dominance in that arena. Garrett Graff, contributing editor to Wired, joins us to discuss why we need someone looking out for us in space. It has a lot to do with GPS and how China and Russia are major players. Next, a huge fall for a startup that seemed to have huge potential. Earlier this year, federal prosecutors charged Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes with 11 counts of criminally defrauding investors, patients, and doctors. Holmes conned many into believing she could change the healthcare industry by offering faster, cheaper, and painless blood tests. Dan Primack, business editor at Axios, joins us for a discussion on how the lessons learned from Theranos changed biotech investing and increased skepticism of new technology. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When it comes to defending America, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a space force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. Joining us now is Garrett Graff. He's a Wired contributing editor. Thank you very much for joining us, Garrett. My pleasure. I found your article. There's a new arms race threatening to explode in space, and it's a fascinating read. In mid-June, the president held a press conference, said he's directing the Pentagon and the Department of Defense to go ahead and create a new space force. And everybody had a chuckle, a laugh. People really didn't necessarily know what was going on. They just thought it was another crazy Trump thing. But after reading some of your stuff, it's actually not so far-fetched. You know, it might be something we actually need. It has a lot to do with GPS and how another country could possibly cripple us by targeting satellites in space. But let's start in January 11th, 2007. You were telling us a story about uh, Air Force Major General William Shelton and something that they were monitoring with the Chinese. Space is an area where the United States has been primarily dominant for a generation. And we've gotten sort of very used to that in the course of the way that we sort of live our lives and live in the military and other fields. Sort of more and more of our daily life is moving up into outer space. And so that's our telephone calls, that's our banking system, and really the entire modern world is underpinned by the GPS system the global positioning system and the satellite constellation above. We think of it you know, as uh, your way to get around on Google Maps, but it, it's really much more than that. It's the world's most accurate clock. And so it's used by banks to run the ATM networks. It's used by the stock exchanges to run stock trades. It's used by gas stations to run their gas pumps and their credit card networks. And then, you know, of course, it's used for Uber and Lyft to order your cars and get the drivers to to you and get the drivers to where they're going. That's sort of the backdrop against which, and as you said, January 11, 2007, the U.S. Air Force was monitoring 
what had appeared to be sort of preparations for a Chinese missile launch of an anti-satellite weapon against one of China's own satellites. And at the time, no one really expected China to be able to either pull off a successful test, but also sort of didn't really believe that at the end of the day, China would blow up one of its own satellites. Anytime you're blowing up something in space, that debris field, the space junk created by that uh, explosion in outer space, can last for decades and impedes the ability of anyone else to launch satellites into that particular orbit and impedes the safety and security of all of the other satellites in outer space. It's a huge technological advancement, too, because, you know, when you look at things in space or pictures or whatnot, things seem to be moving slow. They're not. Things are moving fast. These satellites are always in motion. And for a, a missile to hit a satellite like that, I mean, it's there. that's a precise target hit right there. So someone uh, compares it to sort of the marksmanship equivalent of a sniper being able to hit a bullseye on a speeding train in one direction while riding a speeding train in the other direction. It's a feat of immense technical skill as well as very precise targeting capabilities. And so in January 2007, the U.S. watched as China launched this anti-satellite missile. It went up into orbit and blew up an old Chinese satellite. And that was a real turning point for the United States because we have built much of our economy and certainly much of our military's advantage on these billion-dollar massive bus-sized satellites sitting out there unprotected in outer space. And now, as of 2007, people began to realize that other adversaries had been noticing America's reliance on outer space systems, and we're beginning to move to counter that. Yeah, that's the big... China has actually spoken publicly about America's vulnerability in space as America's Achilles heel. Yeah, that's and that leads to the, the fears and why we might need a quote-unquote space force. Uh, China, the Chinese, Russians, they notice this stuff, and if they take an opportunity to cripple us in that way, then we're sitting ducks in a lot of other ways. In your piece, you say that 14 of the 16 infrastructure sectors that the Department of Homeland Security defines as critical all rely on GPS for their operations. So if you take out some GPS satellites, it puts us in a serious disadvantage at that point. Yeah, and uh, it's the way our fighters navigate. It's the way our ships navigate. It's the way that our missiles know where to go and how we help direct bombs sort of safely and securely to their targets. And that's just the military applications. As I said, you know, there are immense civilian parts of this system that most of us sort of don't think about. You probably interact with the GPS system overhead dozens of times a day and probably most days don't think about it at all. And it's this immense vulnerability. And so it's sort of, as you said, that we get so used to these sort of seemingly out of the blue, wacky pronouncements from President Trump that I think most Americans saw his rambling comments at a couple of different points this spring about the need for a space force as just another Trumpian spout off. But in fact, it represents a very serious ongoing going public policy debate that actually has been moving through Congress uh, and the Pentagon over the last couple of years. The House National Defense Authorization Act last year actually called for the creation of the Space Force, they called it the Space Corps, as a sort of subservient part of the Air Force. 
much like the Marines are part of the Department of the Navy. Donald Trump now is talking about something different that would be a full sixth branch of the military separate uh, with its own, you know, Secretary of the Space Force. But this is something that actually really didn't come out of nowhere and probably actually very accurately reflects the threats and the intelligence briefings that the president is getting from the nation's military and intelligence leaders. When I was speaking to then Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper as he was leaving office in the fall of 2016, he actually said to me at the time that space was one of his top three concerns in the in the world. And it's something that his successor, Dan Coates, the current director of national intelligence, has sort of reiterated this year in what's called the Global Threat Assessment, sort of the annual major roundup of the world's top threats. Let's move forward a little into let's say, uh, a future type of space war. What are the main categories of space weapons that could be used to target satellites and other things like that? This is part of what makes this story so fascinating is that in the intelligence community and the in the U.S. military, as well as certainly in the American public, actually have very little visibility into what our main peer and near-peer adversary nation states are developing as space weapons. Russia and China have, we know, very active space and counter space weapons. And one of the ones that is certainly, no pun intended, on our radar is something known as Object 2014-28E which was something that the Russians launched into orbit in 2014 that the U.S. originally thought was basically just space junk. Uh, It was something that uh, didn't appear to be doing anything at all. And then the U.S. began to sort of notice it actually moving around in outer space. This is something that most satellites don't have the capability to do. And part of what makes space such a challenging domain for intelligence analysts is it's really hard to know intelligence If you're looking at a country like China or Russia that is saying that uh, it's building sort of space repair capabilities, well, those look a lot like space destructive capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, As I had sort of one analyst say to me, if something has a grappling arm to help fix something, well, that grappling arm can also rip something out. (laughs) We have our secrets too, though. You know, we have uh, some unmanned space shuttle-like vehicles that have been orbiting the Earth. Uh, There was one that was orbiting the earth for like 718 days and it was like a huge secret right so you know at Absolutely. the same time we're also one developing. Up there right now doing yeah. who knows what and like you said also you know the rise of companies like spacex and everything in the near future space low-level orbit all that stuff is going to be very very impacted with a lot of debris and, and and travel and stuff like that so it is kind of important to really develop these type of defense measures that really gets to sort of part of the heart of this debate around the space force or the space core this is going to be an arena, a domain in the government speak that is increasingly populated by commercial interests and even tourists. Um, you know, you've got Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rockets. You've got Elon Musk's SpaceX. You know, you're going to see space tourists for the first time in the next couple of years beginning to pay to orbit the Earth. And whether we build a true military force looking uh, at outer space, folks 
focused on space defense and offense or whether we build something sort of more akin to a space coast guard sort of something that's more of a police force sort of a good governance force for outer space is part of the sort of open question around the the development and the evolution of the u.s space fighting assets yeah it's just such an interesting discussion because you hear space force and you think we're getting ready for that big asteroid that's going to hit the earth soon and that's really not what this is about it's it's so much more imminent something that we really need to be monitoring because as you say if our gps system gets targeted and it you know it could collapse the entire global economy at some point one of the things that really shocked me as i was researching this article is that the us actually has no persistent capability to watch space in real time so we don't really know what's happening up above moment by moment what we get are basically batch processed radar images that give us a snapshot of what space looked like about six hours ago every six hours. And so there's a lot of room for something to take place and to begin to unfold far overhead that we would be literally blind to. It's a fascinating story. We didn't even get to touch on a lot of things that are in the article. It's a great read. Uh, We'll point people to it on our social media. Garrett Graff, contributing editor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. It's a fraud that not only defrauded investors of nearly a billion dollars, but that also put patients in harm's way. Joining us now is Dan Primack, business editor for Axios. Friday, federal prosecutors charged Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes and the former president, Sonny Balwani, with 11 counts of criminally defrauding investors, patients and doctors. It is an incredible story. Let's start real quick. How did Silicon Valley get played by Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes? Theranos is a company started almost a decade ago at this point by Elizabeth Holmes, and, and it was a blood testing company. What they wanted to do was rather than go and have you know, these big blood draws to, you know, for every test you need, every medical test you need, they believed, or Elizabeth believed, that she could get a, basically a drop of blood or a couple drops of blood just out of a finger prick, and that could run dozens or even hundreds of tests on that single drop. And the potential for that, if you could do it, was massive right? You would have much lower costs. You would have a lot less pain for individuals. And she went and she raised a lot of money, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from a lot of big name people, not so much Silicon Valley investors, but folks like the Waltons who are known uh, for creating Walmart and individuals like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, the former secretary of state. And she created a large company. It had hundreds and hundreds of employees at one point and was valued at $9 billion. It was a con, and it's unclear whether it was always intended to be a con or whether simply she couldn't make the technology work and so started trying to lie her way out of it. The technology simply didn't work, and there were lies along, a lot of lies along the way. In fact, there's a new book about this called Bad Blood by the Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyou, who really blew the whistle first on Theranos, and it's a great read. And, and what you realize from it is that if you were an employee at the company, certain information was siloed, or, or you weren't able to get certain information, and, and so you didn't really realize that there was something wrong going on on the other side. When regulators would come to examine the lab, everything looked fine, but what the regulators didn't know was that the real lab was behind a door that they hadn't even seen. When it came to investors, they were given literally false numbers, fake information about sales. So there was fraud all over the place. And ultimately, like most houses of cards, it finally fell down. Yeah. You said this changed biotech investing. 
It has. You know, one of the big criticisms of those who invested in Theranos, those who signed partnerships, I remember Walgreens had a huge partnership, Safeway had a huge partnership with Theranos, was the company never had any peer-reviewed science. Usually, particularly if you're talking about a major biotech breakthrough, which this was, and one that a lot of folks who are in blood science didn't believe was possible, you would normally have to start proving this thing out uh, with peer-reviewed science. Maybe not the day you form when you're raising your first round of outside capital. But certainly by the time you're a $9 billion company, and they never did that. And one of the things that's really changed is venture capitalists, particularly in private equity investors who are in biotech. The Theranos example has really reminded them and made sure that they are getting peer-reviewed science for the deals they're doing, particularly when they get to higher prices and the companies are a bit more mature. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of this story. They asked Holmes and they asked the company, how do your Edison machines work? And it was a completely vague answer. A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample. That's how vague the answer was. Elizabeth Holmes really fancied herself to be the next Steve Jobs. She even walked around in, uh, in, in black turtlenecks after reading Walter Isaacson's biography of him. And I think she viewed it the same as an iPhone, right? If you had said to Steve Jobs or somebody at Apple, well, how does the iPhone work? You know, you probably would have gotten a very vague answer. But the reality was, it didn't really matter because so long as you could turn the iPhone on and it turned on and you could make a call or get on the internet, how it really works was largely considered irrelevant. For her, though, it was a bigger deal. You're talking about people's health here. When people would get results from these devices, that could affect what drugs their physician would prescribe them or not prescribe them. Right. There's lives at stake and it increases the skepticism of technology and the outlandish you know, ideas that people could have and, and re what really could get done at that point. It did. I wrote that this was kind of, I think, the first major chink in the armor of Silicon Valley when it came to invention, right? You know, th there's always this whiz bang, this wow factor about stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley. When you think about a smartphone, any smartphone you have, that's a supercomputer. Would have taken, you know, warehouses full of computers to be able to have that kind of processing power just 20 years ago. And, and so there's always this belief that so long as someone says they're building something that can do this new incredible thing, that that's probably real, particularly if you come up with a device and you physically have a box that has pretty lettering on it. But this was one was a con. And I think it was the beginning of people having more skepticism. You know, there's a lot of talk in Silicon Valley about vaporware when a company yeah. presents something that doesn't really work yet, uh, but they don't tell you it doesn't work yet. And in Elizabeth's home, Theranos as an entire company was vaporware. She was on a ton of magazine covers, people throwing money at it. And there's going to be a movie made about this now. Who shares in all the blame? There is a lot of blame. The media fell down. Investors certainly fell down. The board, among whose directors, by the way, was Jim Mattis, who's currently the Secretary of Defense for the United States, who refuses to comment on any of this. Bill Frist, who used to be the Senate Majority Leader, was on the board. Henry Kissinger, none of whom will answer any questions about this, even though they were on the board theoretically providing oversight here. Everybody fell down on the job. All of that said, to me, it ultimately comes down to Holmes and Sonny Balwani, who was the former president. They were also in a relationship at the time, uh, no longer. To me, a good con artist is a good con artist because they're able to trick a lot of people. And, and they tell people what those people want to hear. They, they figure out what somebody will be receptive to. And if they have to, they will literally change numbers. They, you know, there are stories of them providing tests for potential partners or doing demonstrations, rather. They literally faked it. They created a pre-roll video so you would get your blood test result and it would be within the normal range, but it wasn't really yours. It was someone else's, but you had no way to know that. They were good con artists. And, and to me, ultimately, the blame lies on them and shows that if somebody really wants to deceive, they're probably going to be successful, at least for a period of time. Dan Primack, business editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.